and uh, he just had a really um, fascinating look into what was happening at the White House, um, and especially looking at uh, the president's um, plan to really, uh, I'm not sure if it was, uh, I, guess, I guess the way there was a clemency program that President Obama really uh, tried to make it his bailiwick. And he spoke um, about coming down to the last final days of the administration and how the president was really diligently working through a lot of these cases and, um, you know, trying to um, get some of the past wrongs right. And uh, one of the things that he said that was very moving was some of the folks whose uh, sessions were uh, commuted were in the West Wing and they were meeting with um, Neil and one of his colleagues. And then all of a sudden the president popped into the room. And they chatted for a few minutes, and then they walked to a local D.C. restaurant, and he had dinner with some of these folks who were just had their um, you know sentences committed and really getting a second chance on life. And um, I think one of um, one of the themes that he had is that the president was really committed uh, to what he did. Uh, he was a very hardworking man. Uh, he would go through volumes and volumes of uh, information and dossiers, and he was working way right up until the end of things. And the um, other thing that I thought was kind of interesting was uh, he talked about the mood in the White House uh, after the uh, Democrats lost the election this past November, and he referred to President, uh, former President um, Obama as the chief consolation officer and how he was really, you know, trying to keep everyone's spirits up in the White House and, and to keep people on point and to keep people on task. So, um, you know, it, it was a fascinating look from the inside, and he really humanized somebody who, uh, you know, unfortunately in the polarized world of the news uh, quite often gets demonized. So uh, I thought that was a special look, and that's really the type of folks that they get here at the uh, White Collar Crime Conference. So, Jay, the um, the of course the conference is an American Bar Association, and that means it's going to be populated populated almost exclusively by lawyers. Do you get any sense of a difference in approach to compliance at a conference such as the ABA White Collar Crime Conference, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, either? the SCCE, Compliance and Ethics Institute, or Compliance Week, or another uh, co such conference which really focuses on compliance, the profession, as opposed to uh, compliance uh, from a legal perspective? Um, well, I, I think uh, the thing that was on everyone's mind, and, you know, we, we've got a podcast that's coming out next week on everything compliance, and they really did um, find the uh, new guidance that was released and uncovered by uh, Matt Kelly a couple weeks ago. You know, people really seem to be aware now, and I think we talk about it in the podcast, that there really is no excuse for not knowing the questions that are going to be asked by the DOJ um, if you get called up in front. So I think this is a general awareness now that seems to be cutting across all the different conferences that uh, people seem to be 
um, happy with the bright lines that the DOJ seem to be providing. And I think that they are in kind counseling their uh, clients and their colleagues about this is what it takes. So um, I know um, there was an article this week that Donna Bohm wrote about, you know, how this, how Wei Chun has really kind of institutionalized and now formalized, uh, I believe it's compliance 2.0. So I think uh, they're probably speaking about it in their own terms about how it would affect their white collar practice but everyone was now talking about the guidance being out there. So I think it's really uh, serving its purpose and, and it's educating. And uh, now the question is, you know, does the message trickle up to the board? And, uh, you know, how do people start, you know, uh, actualizing it into their, you know, day-to-day -day things and, and baking it into their processes and procedures? Operationalize, operationalize, operationalize uh, may become there my new go. mantra. So uh, say that uh, fast three times in front of your daughters and uh, see what happens. <laughs> so um, the um, in terms of uh, vendors and um, the uh, do they do they have a, a room for vendors and displays uh, like uh, we would see at a typical compliance conference? Um, we would, but it's, um, you know, probably about a total of 15 or 20 vendors. So it's not kind of like, you know, the big SCC conferences where you have a whole devoted area uh, and, you know, you've got aisles upon aisles. Um, chiefly the folks who were, um, you know, participating here from the vendor communities, uh, had either um, a focus on, um, you know, driving data and forensics. So some of the big fours were here. Uh, firms that provided third-party due diligence were here. And, um, you know, it, um, it's a much more subtle approach. There's, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's no spinning wheel to win an iPod or anything like that, but it's pretty much more... Uh, uh, information driven is really, um, I find it's an opportunity to catch up with clients. Uh, you've got a lot of people in one venue. So there's just people that you meet, you know, walking down the hall and, and catching up with folks. And then, like I said, the uh, majority of the connections happen uh, in the networking events, which are pretty heavy on both um, Wednesday and Thursday night. So here being in Miami, uh, at one point last night, we were on a, a nice little cruise ship that was uh, dark, docked right across from the hotel, and they had a little jazz combo, and uh, we were enjoying the Rat Pack style. And uh, here in uh, the Fontainebleau, they have this very interesting hallway that's uh, all dedicated to Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack. So they have all these photos of him being here at the hotel and the the swing in 50s and the 60s. So um, I might send you one of those and you can probably include it in the show notes. You know, and I have to say, I didn't realize you had graduated from high school in 2003. It's uh, very impressive, <laughs> your uh, meteoric career since that time with your Facebook <laughs> post today. Oh, yeah, that's um, that is a friend of mine who I went to high school with and I haven't seen uh you know, since 1983, not since 2003. Uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, it's kind of fun to 
to go right back to those days and those people. So I, I think that you also take it advantage, uh, you know, as we travel and we go around to connect with our different colleagues. Uh, I always try to find somebody in the uh, city where I am. And, and I know you've often hooked up with some of your law, law school friends. So I think that's one of the uh, social benefits we get out of all the conferencing we do. So, Jay, we had a couple of, uh, actually more than a couple, but we had a few uh, FCPA-related events that I wanted to highlight uh, this week. We had a Mexican citizen jailed for FCPA conspiracy, a Texas-based sales agent uh, jailed. Uh, and, and I think uh, really tying into Miami uh, or with a Miami tie, we had a former director of um, the telecom case, the telecom company in the Haitian telco case, was finally arrested. He'd been a fugitive from justice for several years. And uh, this is a case that gave us Esquinazi. So he will probably join Mr. Esquinazi and Rodriguez uh, in jail. They got the longest FCPA-related sentences uh, ever. Um, so uh, he will probably be looking at a, a fairly long stay in Club Fed. Uh, the Down in Panama, the Panama Papers is really not FCA directly related, but it's certainly corruption-related. Uh, the Mossack Fonseca, uh, two of the three founding partners, were arrested this week for um, uh, money laundering and other crimes related to their work with that law firm. And payment of bribes and funneling bribes, uh, all uh, uh, with information that came out from uh, Lavalato, uh, Operation Car Wash, uh, and the Odebrecht settlement. So that fallout uh, continues. We had a not FCPA case, but a huge sanctions case. And when I say huge, we're talking $892 million sanction against a Chinese corporation, ZTE Corporation, um, for uh, selling into uh, uh, Iran and uh, North Korea in violation of U.S. sanctions. So very aggressive enforcement early on in the Trump administration. We also had the Trump administration arguing very uh, strenuously for a position taken by the Obama administration on the expansion of, uh, or at least the logical extension of the FCPA to include foreign uh, persons who were involved in FCPA conspiracies, and uh, that argument was made in the Second Circuit. So for those who were concerned that the Justice Department would completely um, scuttle uh, FCPA and uh, sanctions slash corruption investigations, uh, the early indications are that I think uh, this Justice Department will continue to proceed forward. One thing I'd like to uh, highlight is, much as we had with the very soft launch of the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, we had an equally soft launch of the fraud section website revamp on the Department of Justice website. The FCPA unit is a part of the fraud section, so um, it's a uh, just an excellent resource for the compliance practitioner uh, going forward. And it's got several. Uh, it, it's not a lot of new information, but it aggregates and compiles all of the fraud section information into one website. So um, there's uh, healthcare fraud, which is a section, securities and financial fraud, and of course the FCPA unit. There's also a strategy, policy, and training section, which I was not aware of. If you go to that tab, that's where you'll find the, uh, the evaluation and also um, speeches and uh, papers 
excuse me, speeches and uh, talks given by the Department of Justice, which really led to, I think, foreshadowed the uh, the evolution as we have seen uh, in the evaluation. For the first time, though, we do see the fraud section leadership and uh, email addresses for fraud section leadership. So I would encourage, uh, I'm going to link to it in the show notes, but it's really a, a wonderful uh, resource. Not related uh, directly to the FCPA, but one of the things that uh, I think you at least investigated while you were at the conference in Miami was the launch of the uh, kind of public launch of the International Association of Independent Certified Monitors, IAICM, which is a group founded by uh, um, Amy McDougall and John Hansen to to bring professionalism to the monitor uh, profession. Uh, class, I should say. Um, I think many people have wondered how monitors are selected. There's often the fear that it's really just the old boys in terms of old DOJ network. And uh, John and Amy have really worked to uh, bring a lot of transparency to the monitor process, to the monitor selection process, to the work monitors do. And uh, I will link to that in the show notes. But if your company is going through any of that, um, it's a great resource. It certainly ties into some of the things that you've already started talking about in your new role at Affiliated Monitors, and I'm hopeful that the IAICM and your outreach work are really going to help people understand that uh, a monitor is not something there as a last resort. A monitor uh, can be a very proactive tool uh, that a company can use to uh, help kick the tires, to help test, to do risk assessments, and a wide variety of tools, or excuse me, a wide variety of services a monitor, uh, a really professional monitor can bring to an organization to help it do business, uh, not only in compliance, but more uh, efficiently. And then finally, uh, last um, Monday, the New Yorker released a, a just a, an explosively important piece on uh, the Donald Trump organization and the hotel deal they did in Azerbaijan. Uh, Adam Davidson did a uh, yeoman's job, spade job in reporting, uh, you know, real uh, shoe leather work where uh, he went to Azerbaijan and took a deep dive into a hotel that the Trump organization uh, developed with uh, politically exposed persons in Azerbaijan. He asked lots of questions relevant to FCPA basically around the due diligence that was done and um, uh, those types of questions. Uh, he also took a look at the source of the funding of the uh, company created by the politically exposed persons, uh, the family of the Minister of Transportation in Azerbaijan, and uh, concluded that there may be uh, funds uh, in that company which came from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. So there's a sanctions issue he raises as well. I'll link to that. It's in uh, it will be in the print copy of the New Yorker, which is uh, comes out this week, and I typically get it on a, a Monday or so, uh, or Tuesday. But it's available online. It's called Donald Trump's Worst Deal. So a lot of really uh, interesting and different things uh, this week that give us um, the opportunity to lead into the most important story of the week. And uh, the Houston Chronicle broke this morning that the Houston Texans have traded Brock Osweiler. Yes, our $77 million quarterback is gone, and he's gone to, wait for it, the Cleveland Browns. Now, if that is not just sending you to the barren landscape of not Miami, I don't know what is. Uh, When I say trade, I use that in a fairly loose technical term, 
because in addition to offloading Mr. Osweiler and his uh, contract, they traded a fourth round pick to the Browns and they got back in return a sixth round pick. So I guess one man's trade is another man's paying somebody to take away a uh, player or, as Branch Rickey might say, addition by subtraction. So uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the Brockster? Um, I, I think Christmas came very early in Houston this year, so they must be uh, uh, dancing in the uh, inner sanctums of Reliance Stadium. I, 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 it always uh, fascinates me when a team can just uh, sweep that much uh, dead money off the books. Um, a couple of years ago, if you remember, the L.A. Dodgers did a big favor for the Red Sox and took, uh, took I think, about a quarter of a billion dollars of salary off our hands. Um, so, you know, there's, uh, there's got to be a reason for doing that. But I'm, I, I know that you've had your frustrations with the Broxer. That the question is now is uh, Jerry Jones is trying to hold out for maybe a fourth-round pick for Romo instead of letting him go free agent. Uh, do you think he goes uh, cross state in Houston, or do you think they go another way? So um, the uh, the reporting up to kind of late last night and this morning really indicated that he, he Romo, was looking at two options. One was the Texans and one was the um, uh, Denver Broncos. I think uh, Jerry Jones, uh, although he uh, is probably reluctant to trade Romo in state, he's less reluctant or he would be more reluctant to let him go to an NFC team and have to see him once or twice Uh, a season um, even before the playoffs. Certainly if he went to an AFC team, he might see him once every three years when he might see him in the Super Bowl, but that's it. So um, even if um, he does, or the Houston does have to give a fourth, I think the preference would be to pick him up in free agency. But if they uh, have to give a fourth, uh, it's probably worth that bet for one year, recognizing that one year could be one preseason game and one hit. Um, he's only had his back broken twice. So, um, but, uh, I guess my greater concern about the, uh, Texans is they lost two starting defensive backs in free agency yesterday. Also, I heard a very interesting, uh, discussion on, uh, Bill Barnwell's podcast. And here was the question. Do you trade JJ Watt? So you have a probably hall of fame player, 27 years old, who's now had two back surgeries. Can he make an entire season? Um, And as great as he is, the Texans had the number one defense in the league last year, and he didn't play but one game. So how much better is he going to make the Texans? Do you cash him out now for two firsts? Uh, And I'd really not uh, considered that, but, um, you know, they're absolutely right. So uh, at least uh, in their speculation of the facts. So uh, a very interesting question posed. I, w- I would hate to see him go. Um, their point was, as, uh, and, and Barnwell and the, and the other commentator clearly love Watt, but can he play at that same level with two back surgeries now? And, of course, no one knows the answer to that till he gets on the field and, and plays. So it's going to be interesting for the Texans, um, whether they can ever uh, – Catch the uh, the Patriots, of course, is not really an open question. It's a forlorn question. 
as long as my main man Tom Brady is there. But um, interesting goings uh, on here in uh, Houston football. Well, I, I would say it's it's not surprising. You know, there are so many of those connections between uh, the Patriots and and um, Houston. You know, coming down from the coaching staff and the approach, and you know, just talking about that issue with about you know potentially trading JJ Watt and with his back surgeries. You know, at some point, we're probably going to have to face that decision in New England with Gronk. Right. And, uh, you know, we've already loaded up. We picked up another tight end and we picked up really an A1 cornerback now. And it's kind of, uh, you know, Belichick is uh, very uh, emotional and committed to his players. But at the same time, he can be very dispassionate. And he can trade away an asset at the prime of their career, knowing that he can bring up that somebody who's younger, who's almost as good, who he can pay half the amount of money. And, um, you know, Butler, who was the star of the Super Bowl uh, two years ago, now suddenly is is facing a little bit of his uh, market mortality and saying, look, you know, the, the pets. I, I think, as I heard it on ESPN yesterday, when, when you're, you know, improving the team and, you know, free agency is just one aspect, then you've got the draft. But you take a look at the pieces that your team brings in and are they bringing in pieces to support you or are they bringing in your replacement? And uh, for Butler, you know, being a very young, uh, undrafted free agent and, you know, winning the Super Bowl at that interception – I don't think he was uh, prepared to to uh, kind of see what happened over the last couple of days in free agency. So, Jay, do you have a, a preview for us of uh, the Jay Rosen weekend report? Uh, I think what I'm going to do is uh, noodle a little bit upon my uh, part that we did uh, yesterday, tape the uh, everything compliance. So I'm going to take a look at, at the uh, – the new guidance from the DOJ take a look at it uh, from the um, uh, chief compliance officer's perspective and how they are trying to uh, interact with vendors and seeing what kind of uh, proactive changes they can make in their own programs. So what uh, what we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, our uh, podcast, Everything Compliance, where we have the panel of uh, Jay Rosen, Mike Volkoff, Matt Kelly, and Jonathan Armstrong. And yesterday we recorded a session, which will go up next Thursday, where we really take a deep dive into the evaluation of corporate compliance programs document. So uh, look look forward to that. Look for that next Thursday. It'll, of course, be posted on iTunes, Libsyn, and my um my site, uh, fcpacompliancereport.com, in addition to uh, coming out through JD Super, but it's a really comprehensive look at the uh, evaluation. So I'd uh, be interested to see uh, what additional thoughts you have for us in your uh, Jay Rosen weekend report. And um, any travel on the horizon for you, Tom? So um, I am going to New York uh, on March 20th to speak at the uh, second annual third party risk management and oversight conference co-sponsored by the financial, um, excuse me, financial research and compliance week. It's in New York. I've uh, written about it on my uh, blog site. uh, And uh, for listeners of this podcast, they can get a discount to the event. So I will link to that in the show notes as well. If you're in New York or anywhere uh, or interested in third-party risk management in uh, 
on the supply chain side, on the sales side, on uh, the vendor side, if you're a vendor, uh, for uh, corporate uh, in-house types, for outside counsel types, for vendor types. And we'll have government, Kara uh, uh, Brockmeyer, scheduled to speak from the uh, SEC's FCPA unit. So it's going to be a fabulous conference focused on uh, third parties. I'm going to talk about third-party uh, risk management ROI, which is always a, a, a critical and key topic. So that's my uh, my next uh, speaking gig, and uh, that, I think, uh, wraps us up at the top of the hour, Jay. So do you want to take us home? Sure. So um, just uh, a thank you to everyone who uh, joins us each week. Uh, it's always fun to uh, speak about what's going on in the uh, FCPA community. And uh, for the week ending March 10th, We'd like to thank you for listening and joining us as we spoke about the week in FCPA that was. This is Tom Fox again. Jay and I would love to hear from you. If you have any comments or questions, you can email jay at j.rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us as it would help our rankings and help us spread the word about this week in FCPA, the only FCPA podcast which wraps up the week's events. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.